Welcome back to episode two of Jailed Returns. This week, Tanner, Kevin, and Allie will be presenting alternative viewpoints on last episode's question. Why does the Washington state government choose to invest in punishing offenders rather than putting more funding towards rehabilitation? Hi, my name is Tanner. So today I'm going to be going over the Three Strikes You're Out review by David LaCourse Jr. It is a source from the Washington Policy Center, which is the original founder of the Three Strikes policy. So the source explains the intended implementation and the immediate effects of the Three Strikes policy in Washington state. It goes over a few statistics on lowering crime rates, but personally, what I don't like about the source is that it cherry-picks sensationalized examples of the Three Strikes Law that elicit an emotional response, but they're likely not representative of the actual population affected by the Three Strikes Law. It also contains a lot of unsubstantiated anecdotal claims. So what I find interesting about the way they present all of this is that they take a very adversarial approach when they refer to the criminals. So they're talking about how the criminals didn't like the implementation of the three strikes law because they were scared of it. it. A few quotes include, when police and crime victims saw this proposal, they immediately adopted it as their own. In addition, anecdotal evidence clearly indicates that at least some criminals have altered their, their behavior because of Washington's laws. Many police officers, corrections officers, and others, both inside and outside the criminal justice system, have noted that criminals fear three strikes. These people have also found that some criminals have modified their behavior. For once, felons are worried about the criminal justice system, and that has proven to be a deterrent factor. So you can see in the kind of language that they use here that they do not look at the criminals in a very positive light, which, you know, it is not necessarily unexpected. But um, another quote says, Washington State Representative Ida Balasicites found that almost all the inmates knew about the three strikes and hated it. What I find interesting about that language and how she says hated it is that they don't see, according to the Washington Public Policy Center, they don't see any kind of, I'd say, redemption in what they do or any kind of guilt. More so, they just see the three strikes policy as a threat and they hate something that's threatening them. I just find it interesting that they speak in those terms. So, in the source, they say that after 20 years, the state expected a total increase of 885 inmates, or a 9% increase over 1992 levels. This estimate will have to be drastically lowered since only 83 criminals have been sentenced under the law after just over three years. So, what's interesting about this is that they say this as it is a kind of victory that they are sentencing a lot less people than Washington State expected. This source is from 1997, however, things have changed a little bit since then. So there's an article from Crosscut titled, Washington State's Other Epidemic, Mass Incarceration. So Washington State is a global outlier when it comes to mass incarceration, not exactly following the optimistic results that they just included. Currently, if you put Washington State on its own compared to every other nation, there are only seven countries in the world that have a higher incarceration rate than Washington State's. And Turkey, which isn't exactly a paradigm of democracy, is just below us. So unfortunately, the three strikes policy hasn't worked out in terms of being very, um, I would say, lenient on how many criminals are put into the system. 
There's some good aspects of the article, which they include statistics. For example, from 1993 to 1995, violent crime dropped 4.8% in spite of the fact that property crimes increased 8.2% during the same period. If you adjust that for Washington's population growth, a 3.6% increase, the violent crime rate plummeted 8.1%, while property crime rose by 4.4%. So, in a sense, this sounds pretty promising that violent crime rates would have dropped so much immediately after the implementation of the policy. However, I have a source called The Growth of Incarceration in the United States Exploring Consequences and Causes that states that... Well, I'd like to start off with um, the three strikes policy is a form of deterrence, which is a modern criminal justice theory that can be traced back to Enlightenment era legal philosophers, mostly stemming from the late 1980s, early 1990s, following the war on drugs. So in the article or in the uh, reports, Helen and Tabarrok also conclude, based on a cost-benefit analysis, that the crime-saving benefits of deterrence are so small relative to the increased cost of incarceration that the lengthy prison sentences mandated by the third strike provision cannot be justified on the basis of their effectiveness in preventing crime. So to sum that up, it's saying that deterrence policies aren't worth it because the societal returns do not reflect the massive cost of incarcerating so many people. Overall, the Washington State Public Policy Center brings up some interesting points on the implementation of the three strikes policy and on deterrent policies in general, but I don't think that what they say substantiates the value of implementing it. So, so Tanner, what you're kind of saying here is that it's an effective policy, but you're getting very, very minimal effects and you're getting really high costs that just don't uh, justify the costs that we're at a diminishing returns point within this? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So the uh, study that I just cited, effectively, it's saying that deterrent policies do work in lowering crime rates, but that amount of crime lowered is so trivial that it doesn't nearly make up for the massive cost. Therefore, it's not an effective policy. Yeah. It's only one half of the solution at best. That's a good way to put it, yeah. That's interesting. So is I guess I'm up next, right? Um, I am Allie, and my source is uh, Beyond the Prison Bubble. And this covers how, you know, the United States basically incarcerates more people than any other developed nation. Um, it's sort of weighing the cost of incarceration versus um, treating the, the criminals or those people who have been convicted of crimes. Um, they were saying that um, in 2009, the population of those in prison had dropped off, but even though it was like a really minimal decrease in the prison population, it was the first time that it had decreased in the last three decades. And it wasn't because of fewer crimes being committed. It was actually just because, um, let's see, the, they basically were just due to punishing drug crimes. There was, um, 
there was basically no, these incarcerations really didn't have any effect on the overall rates of crime in the United States. Um, apparently, you know, like these people who are convicted for crimes really didn't need to be in jail for any particular reason aside from, you know, um, menial drug crimes. About 10 to 15 percent of these people could be released without any issue, actually. And the cost of keeping these people who don't really need to be in jail is about $50 billion annually. So this is really a lot of money being spent for the amount of results that it produces, which apparently is not a whole lot. Um, the system, this article also covers how the system isn't very well equipped to deal with crime or prisoners who are released. 93% um, of people who are incarcerated will return home and the rest of them, you know, they're either um, having the death sentence or they pass away while they're incarcerated. Um, basically, there's not a whole lot put into rehabilitating the approximately 750,000 people who will be released this year. And they don't have any more skills or resources given to them that will keep them from being reincarcerated. Um, California apparently spends less than 3,000 per year per inmate on rehabilitation programs. And 50% of all prisoners released um, in the year had not participated in a single program. So they are thinking that it might actually be more beneficial to sort of examine each person on a case-by-case -case basis and find what would really be effective as far as treatment goes. But still, there are not any really um, prominent programs in place for that. Apparently, former prisoners are still accounting for an estimated 15 to 20% of all arrests among adults. So it means that thousands of Americans every year are victimized by criminals who have already done time without experiencing any correction at all. So just simply incarcerating people does not solve the issue of why they are criminals in the first place. Um, any, any policy that brings prison populations down without a good way to deal with the prisoners who are released, i.e. their rehabilitation will prove counterproductive, says the author of this article. Um, research demonstrates that offenders who actually earn a high school equivalency diploma or vocational training are more likely to get jobs after release and become productive members of society. And those who get drug treatments are less likely to relapse. But they're saying that if we could implement effective programs, we could reduce uh, redictivism by 15 to 20%. It is said that 495,000 out of 750,000 who will be released this year will be rearrested within three years. So the cost of criminals is extremely high. They're saying that a, a high risk youth who becomes a chronic offender will cost society between 
4.2 and 7.2 million dollars. So obviously it'd be more cost effective on the whole to treat the problem before it becomes an even more big and costly one. There's been a, a little bit done to um, treat um, criminals. There's a intensive supervision programs, which are basically like intense probation with a lot of um, like boot camp and training, and they are kept an eye on intensively. But these were mostly occurring in the late 80s, and by the mid 90s, most of these programs had been dismantled. But there have been a couple programs recently initiated which had better results. And one of them was a Boston called the BRI, the Boston Reentry Initiative, which actually offers more individual support for the individuals. And um, the BRI participants had a rearrest rate that was 30% lower, apparently. So in short, it's obviously more cost effective to, according to this article, at least to treat these um, criminals and be you know, more specific to their individual needs than to let it become a greater problem over time. And that's sort of the end of my source, thanks. So Ali, I'm, I'm reading the end of this and it says, uh, rehabilitation programs are not for every prisoner and that we shouldn't waste money on those who lack motivation. So where do we draw that line? Um, between those that lack motivation and those that need encouragement to uh, get involved in a program? Well, I think, you know, at a certain point, you'll kind of know if someone is just a hopeless case. I mean, if they are just repeatedly making the same mistakes and they don't really show remorse for their actions. I think kind of at that point, you know, then maybe they're just the kind of people who end up being in jail. And I'm sure there are, a few people who are going to end up that way. But I also think there's a huge amount of people who are not even being offered treatment that could actually be effective. Well, I was researching for this assignment. I found something else interesting. I was looking up um, reoffense rates in different states, and there was an article about California that said that they're cutting off a lot of their rehabilitation programs and reintroduction into society, stuff like that, because it looks good to a lot of politicians. Um, giving rehabilitation programs may give some people the sense that a politician is being weak on crime. So cutting them off is basically saying you're being tough on crime and can get you a few more votes. Yeah, I think I also saw that, Tanner. Uh, it was interesting to see how many prisons in California has been have been built. Um, I think what I was reading was since Schwarzenegger was governor, it was more than one prison per year. Um, so they've 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 kind of gotten themselves into a spending frenzy that um, a lot of these special programs just don't have room for funding anymore because of the massive infrastructure of the prison system down there. Yeah, whenever I find a, uh, I shouldn't say whenever, but oftentimes I'll find a source, especially on Washington State, and even in the source that I presented, it'll compare our policies to California's policies, and I have never seen any, um, I've never seen a comparison to California's criminal justice system that puts California in a good light. Mm-hmm.
Mm -hmm. Well, I think I'm going to jump into mine here. I've got something. It's from the Change Washington website, and it was written by Scott Lindsay, who uh, who is an attorney, uh, Seattle resident, former public safety advisor and special assistant for the police reform of the city of Seattle and a former senior counsel to the House Oversight Committee for Democrats. The name of the article is a loophole that effectively legalizes most crimes in Seattle. So um, in October of 2020, council member Lindsay Herbaugh uh, pushed through the Seattle City Council Public Safety Committee, uh, something that was, uh, in my opinion, a little underhanded the way that it got done, but I'll get into that later. Uh, but it it decriminalizes misdemeanors as long as whoever's committing the crime um, has a substance use disorder, mental disorder, or can claim um, that the crime was committed um, to better their poverty status. So it goes through and it talks about how, um, according to the council members, 60% of Seattle misdemeanor defendants have a mental disorder or uh, substance abuse and 90% are considered below the poverty line. So these are these are terrible things. Um, and then it goes into talking about Seattle's police and how uh, approximately 12,000 non DUI and domestic violence misdemeanor arrests, which are two thirds of the Seattle the Police Department arrests, uh, would basically be eradicated um, with 90% of them being below the poverty line and 60% of them also being um, having substance abuse or mental disorder. The, the big part of this initiative that went through that I see as a failing is the, the way at which it has to be claimed in order to be a defense. So in order for a substance use disorder to be a defense, they only have to have symptoms of a, of a symptom uh, sorry, symptoms of a substance use disorder. So they don't have to have a medical diagnosis. They just simply have to claim that they're addicted to drugs or alcohol. Similar to the mental disorder, all they have to do is have symptoms of a disorder, which can be as easy as depression, depression or anxiety. Um, and this makes it really, really difficult for any prosecutor to overcome if they say that they're anxious or if they're depressed. How do you how do you conclude that they are not? And finally, the poverty. Um, if, the, if the crime is an immediate basic need related to an adequate standard of living for the actor and or family um, stolen merchandise. So they can even steal something under this and then sell it for cash as long as they claim that they're going to buy food or a necessity for it. Um, and then the, they'll never be charged with said crime. So it goes through um, a lot of this. Um, and then it talks about how the backdoor like legislative process was kind of done. Um, so this is under this this has nothing to do, the committee has nothing to do with oversight on anything other than spending but they were bringing it up saying that the spending is 
by, by prosecuting less cases, there's going to be less spending, which is true, but I don't think it's the solution because just because you're not charging somebody with a crime doesn't mean that any crime isn't being committed. Um, the big issue with some of this that I have is they don't, they don't offer treatment. And this is the thing similar to Tanner's case. Um, they're saying that, that maybe if we just don't commit, convict these people that they won't have any type of a crime, but there's still a crime happening and there's still people that need um, help, but they're not getting help due to funding. I see. Let's, um, can you go over again the points on the policy regarding being able to commit these crimes without having any uh, consequences? Is that hyperbole? I mean, not any crime, but in terms of committing crimes of poverty and such, is that hyperbole so or? It's, it's, so it's a usable defense for any non-DUI or non-domestic violence misdemeanor. Yeah. So you can use, you can say that you're an alcoholic or you're addicted to drugs or you're depressed or you have anxiety or you stole someone's car. And again, this is a random example, but like you can steal someone's car and then sell it and say that you bought food or you don't have a car. So you needed it. So it was because you were in need. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which yeah. They... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that I was reading through that article and I was like, wow, that's kind of, that's pretty outrageous in a way that they don't really have to prove anything mm -hmm. like their defense. Um, I'm not saying that people don't legitimately have needs or, you know, that they are suffering from substance abuse or alcohol or mental disorders or whatever, but some people are actually like threatening public safety and other people around them who did absolutely nothing to them. So maybe these people should actually be punished for their, you know, mm -hmm. disturbances. Well, and it's, it's, <laughs> I don't even think that it's like necessarily like, oh, they did something wrong. We need to punish them. But I think the other example is like, so there were 12,000 arrests. The city eternally only charged 5,400 people, but those 1,200 and those 5,400 people aren't getting the help that they need. And this is kind of the thing is like, if you, if you say that speeding is illegal or, or sorry, now legal, it doesn't mean that less people are going to speed. So the roads are safer. It just means that you're not writing speeding tickets. So yeah. It's, it's the far other side of the coin from the three strikes rule, in my opinion, that you're, you're just letting everybody off the hook and not encouraging them to go through um, any type of treatment. And then even here at the end, uh, they're talking about the public needs to protect from bad people and they need inpatient people for addicts and mental disorders. Um, but just because you're an addict or you have a mental order doesn't mean that you can be trusted to get your own help on your own. You need the public's interest. You need encouragement. You need these specialized programs to assist you to get um, back into the societal norm where people aren't being hurt. Yeah. When you put it that way, it's funny. It's um, quite the contrast to something like the three strikes law. Mm-hmm.